experiences what the communists are doing right and what they have to teach us. The Communist Party says, I teach it that there is a great battle going on all over the world, which in the final analysis is a struggle for men's hearts, minds, and souls. And that's all right. It is probably true to say of the communists that never in man's history has a small group of people set out to win a world and achieve more in less time. And they have always worked through a minority. If you ask me what is the distinguishing mark of the communists, what it is that communists most outstandingly have in common, I would not say, as some people might expect, their ability to hate. This is by no means common to them all. I would say that by, beyond any shadow of a doubt, it is their idealism, their zeal, their dedication, their devotion to their cause, and their willingness to sacrifice. And then Hyde uh, draws a little comparison. And remember, uh, he left the communists and became a Catholic. The strongest impact made upon the mind of the recruit by the first communist with whom he associates is likely to be of dedication. The first impression made by the party comes from its activity and the apparent relevance of that activity to our time. This being so, the man who decides to become a communist does so in the expectation that he too will have to be dedicated and active as well. This he knows from the start is what is involved in being a communist. He comes to the party, therefore, prepared to have to give up himself to an exceptional extent. If he has grown up in Christian circles, he will know that Christianity, like communism, demands the whole man, and that Christians were intended and are expected to change the world. That they too should be active, that membership of a church is not like membership of a club. That, in theory at least, the Christian should be relating his Christianity to his whole life and to the world about him all the time, everywhere. Yet in practice, although Christianity has taught him that total dedication is something to be admired, and something to which one should aspire in one's own life, a communist may be the first totally dedicated person he has met who is not wrapped up in his own salvation, but is devoting himself to the transformation of society and to changing the world. Jesus sets down for us yet another standard by which we might measure our success as churches. We read in Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. 
Suppose one of you wants to build a tower, will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and is not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The successful church, according to Jesus, is a committed church. A committed church. What an encouragement it is, at least was to me when I first read the book of Revelation. And I understood other scriptures which spoke to, which speaks to the church about the certain victory which is ours as members of the kingdom of God. We see there in Revelation that we will have our palms of victory. We will stand before the throne of God and the Lamb robed in white singing his praises forever and ever. In the words of Revelation, we shall overcome. But how sad it is, how convicting to, to hear the words of this man, Douglas Hyde, because we know that they are true. Our churches are filled with people who listen to these words of Jesus in Luke chapter 14, and at the very least, they are foreign language. It's possible for a person to become an Orthodox Presbyterian without it ever occurring to him that the pattern of his life will be transformed, that the whole of every waking day will be different because of his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. It's possible for a convert to go through a lengthy class of doctrinal instruction without once being made to feel that he's about to become part of a group of people who are quite exceptional in their level of commitment. It's equally possible for him to receive the entire instruction that is required before church membership without ever hearing a word about his personal responsibility for helping to transform society by taking Christian values, Christ's standards, into his place of work, into his recreation, into his politics, into his personal relationships with others. Certainly he will finish his instruction knowing that he must attend church on Sunday and knowing that he must read his Bible and say his prayers. But his instruction will probably end without it ever occurring to him that he is now one of the people who were originally charged with the job of changing the world. We have in this uh, little cartoon here the attitude of too many people 
to the worship and service of the Lord today. The man is coming out of the church, shaking hands with the pastor. The pastor is gawking because the man is saying, well, that was fun. We must do it again sometime. <laughs> A shallow, nominal, leftovers kind of gesture to the one who should be in total command of our whole person. When I was a child, there were a few television programs which I watched all the time. One of them, of course, was the Mickey Mouse Club. Every day after school, like all of the other children in my neighborhood, I rushed home and plopped down on a pillow in front of my television set, or at least my father's television set. Then I would uh, reach over next to the television and grab my mouse ears, and I would put them on my head and pretend that I was a mouseketeer. And then came Saturday. Saturday was the day in which we had a program called Winky Dink. And uh, on the Winky Dink show, we always got the chance uh, to pretend that we were artists. You see, all you had to do was to send in to the television station and they would send you a Winky Dink kit. And in that kit, you would get a piece of clear plastic, which you would stick over the front of the television screen. And then you would also take from the kit the magic marking pencils, and you would follow Winky Dink across the screen and draw perfect works of art, and then call your mother in to impress her. <laughs> Unfortunately, I carried the game of make-believe a little bit too far. I pretended that I had a Winky Dink kit. <laughs> I did not send into the television station. <laughs> I did not put my clear plastic up. I just took out my unofficial Crayolas <laughs> and Winky Dinked all over my father's television set. <laughs> Uh, so much for my television watching. <laughs> of course, uh, Jesus Christ does not speak to us in the Bible about mouseketeers, pretending that we're mouseketeers, or pretending that we're artists. But Jesus does speak to us about making believe. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 1, thousands of people are crowding around to hear Jesus speak. They're actually trampling on one another to catch the words of wisdom that he's speaking to them. And what is this, the, the first thing, what is the first thing that Jesus says to these thousands of eager listeners? Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. That's a Greek word which literally means to play a part on the stage, to be an actor, to act in a drama. Hypocrisy is make-believe. It means to act out a role which is not real. It means let's pretend to be religious. 
as the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, there are people who have a form of godliness without the power. Or as Jesus says in Revelation 3, verse 1, they have the name of being alive, but they are dead. And what is the most foolish thing of all about hypocrisy? About making believe? Well, the folly of hypocrisy, says Jesus here in verse 3, is that one day it will be found out. When we were in the state of Maine serving a church there, a young man pulled off a tremendous hoax on the administration of the college in our town. He got accepted on a skiing scholarship. See, we have skiing up there, Maine, where the snow is and things like that. He got accepted on a skiing scholarship by sending false grades and false transcripts and even false letters of recommendation to the college from his supposed former coaches. Well, they admitted him to the school and, they even, and he even went to several weeks of classes. But one day he was found out. They discovered that he'd made it all up when he finally began to try to ski. He was making believe. Jesus says to each one of us, are you a hypocrite? Are you making believe? Have you really experienced the reality of salvation? Or are you just going through the motions? See, you can deceive the church for a time. You can deceive us. You can even deceive yourself for a while. But you see, you cannot deceive, says Jesus, the judge who knows your heart, who sees what you think and sees what you do in secret. For there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed and nothing hidden that will not be made known. This is what you should be afraid of, says Jesus, going back to our first message. You should fear not your parents or your pastor or the public around you. You should fear me. You should fear me with whom you have to do. Because I have the power to accept you into my heaven or cast you into hell. Now one of the obvious teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, and I understand that one of our churches at least has been studying the Sermon on the Mount recently, one of the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount at the very end is that each human being is faced with a choice. And that choice revolves around the person of Jesus Christ. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. There are but two choices before us. There is no third or fourth or fifth. There are only two choices, two ways of life, two gates to enter, two destinations at the end of the road, and two crowds with which we can live. And the point is that we must commit ourselves to one or the other of those two options. 
Now, of course, as John Stock has said, people like to be uncommitted. Every opinion poll allows not only for a yes or no answer, but for a convenient don't know. Men are lovers of Aristotle and of his golden mean. The most popular path is the via media. To deviate from the middle way is to risk being dubbed an extremist or a fanatic. Everybody resents being faced with the necessity of a choice. But Jesus will not allow us to escape the choice. The successful church is a church which, first of all, commits itself to the Lord Jesus Christ. The communists talk in terms of sacrifice and giving things up for the purpose of their cause, but Jesus Christ also talks in terms of sacrifice. We read in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, I urge you, brethren, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, pleasing to God. There's that God as a significant other in our lives again, living for his pleasure. I urge you to offer your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, pleasing to God. Now that word offer literally means to place beside. And what is being described there is an Old Testament worshiper bringing his sacrificial animal to the altar and placing it beside the altar and then leaving it for the priest to use in offering it up as worship to God. To offer that animal in sacrifice meant that you were giving it up completely to God. You were surrendering all rights to it so that God could do with it what he pleased. And this is what God wants from us. He wants the rights to our total person. Give me your bodies as living sacrifice, says the Lord. Yes, give me your bodies. Keep them pure. Keep them holy, but also give me your time, your abilities, your resources, your personality, your desires, your plans, your love. Give me your total person. You must be totally committed to me. You must say, here are my Lord, here's my life. I am at your disposal. Send me. Perhaps our greatest excuse in the church today for not serving God and not giving him everything is the excuse that we're too busy. I'm too busy going to school. My studies take up all my time. I'm too busy making money to feed my family in this inflationary economy. I have to work two jobs and my wife has to work too. I'm too busy raising my kids. I'm too busy resting. Jesus tells the parable in Luke chapter 14, 24 and following of the great supper, the parable of the great banquet. 
And in that parable, Jesus called on some people to follow him. Follow me. Just like he called on his early disciples to follow him and to leave everything. But what was the response of those people to their invitation to the great banquet, the great feast? I'm too busy with the new field I just bought. I have to go and inspect it. I'm too busy with my new team of oxen. I'm too busy with the woman that I just married. I'm too busy. You know, I'm sure it's not an accident, nothing's an accident, At the very next passage of scripture after that parable of the great banquet is the, parable that I, is the passage that I read to you at the beginning. The one which talks about the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Any of you who does not give up everything he has that is unnecessary and which saps your energy and your resources from doing the work of my kingdom cannot be my disciple. We must be living sacrifices. We must be committed, first of all, to the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. One of the things which has struck me most about the Christmas story, as I've read it in recent years, is the kind of people that God used to bring about this greatest revelation of himself in human history, in the birth of Jesus Christ and in Christ's life. We read about the people he used in the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke. You remember Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. The scripture tells us that, quote, both of them were upright in the sight of God observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. Most of you are aware of the tremendous faith of Mary. If you're not aware of it, you ought to read over Luke chapter 2. Mary says, when God tells her this incredible thing that through his angel that he is going to do, Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said whatever you say, Lord. We know of the obedience of Joseph, who risked public scandal in this whole thing. We know of the hope of Simeon the priest. Remember Simeon, the old priest, who rejoiced to have in his hands the Redeemer of Israel, the consolation of Israel. Scripture tells us that Simeon, quote, was righteous and devout. And then there was the widow Anna. You remember Anna, the prophetess, the older women, woman, who never left the temple, quote, but worshipped night and day, praying and fasting. You see, these are the kinds of people that God uses to bring in his kingdom in a powerful way. Spiritual men and women who are filled with the presence of Jesus Christ and his life to overflowing. You see, that picture in John chapter 7 is not a false picture. It is possible to overflow with rivers of living water from outside of us. You know, I really thank God that um, 
that I know some of you. And I really thank God for you because uh, when I'm with some of you, I really feel as though I'm with Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful feeling. It's a wonderful blessing. But too often, that kind of obvious presence of God in another person is the refreshing exception rather than the rule. Too many of our times together as Christians are opportunities not for growth in the Lord and encouragement and instruction, but rather sin. As we make light of spiritual realities, as we make light of other people, too many of us we ministers and elders are very long on our doctrine, but very short on our spirituality. We don't spend very much time in prayer and in the Word. We talk about Jesus Christ being the King and Head of the Church. We often put it at the end of our letters in the name of the King and Head of the Church. But we really don't act very much as though Jesus Christ is the king and head of the church because we display very little, or maybe not as much as we should, of the mind of Jesus Christ, the attitudes of Jesus Christ, the spirit of Jesus Christ in our meetings together as elders. Too often we harbor unresolved differences unconfessed anger, unforgiven sin between each other. How often are we really open with each other in the church, not just among the membership, but among the elders about our spiritual lives? How accountable are we to one another for our devotion and service to the Lord? How often do we open ourselves up to each other and give our deepest need. How far have we lowered the standards of God's word, not only for the ordained leadership in the church, but for church membership as well? How often have we created, again in our desire to have any members, how, long, how often have we created for ourselves years of disciplinary cases? simply because we did not wait to see some visible fruit in the life of a person who says that they're a child of God. You see, we have to recommit ourselves to the Lord. We have to be that devoted bride whose eye is upon the Lord who is jealous for us and for our devotion. We must love him above all else above all idols, even those wonderful things which could become idols. We must sacrifice our desires, our plans, for his will, even when it hurts. We must give up our sins for his glory. We must be a church committed first to the Lord, or we will not be successful. But secondly, and much more briefly, we must be a church committed 
to one another. Committed to one another. How are we to be committed to one another? Well, first of all, I would say to you that we must be committed to our church. Members must be committed to their church. In one of the skits that we saw last night, we heard several times of members who left their church for another church because of problems in their church or because of more activity elsewhere. It's my opinion, and I guess some theologians over the years may disagree with this, but it's my opinion that one of the great tools in the hands of Satan to keep us from being successful churches is the opportunity to go to another church. There was no such opportunity in the New Testament church. When problems arose in the church, there was only one thing to do. You had to resolve the problems biblically before the Lord. If we've got a problem with the church, if we don't think they're doing something they ought to be doing, or if we think they're doing something wrong too often, we let them know it. We blast off in critical tones with our gripes, and then we stomp out with ever, without ever attaining usually an ounce of reconciliation. And as a result, our churches are poorer because they have not changed where they are wrong, and we have not changed where we are wrong. And the ideals of God's word, again, as I said the other day, the ideals of God's word are nothing more than some kind of unattainable limiting concept. They're little more than the pie in the sky, by and by. John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, book four, has a section entitled God's Abundant Grace Toward Delinquent Churches. In that section, Calvin reminds us that the churches at Galatia and Corinth possessed some very heinous sins, some very great problems in their midst. And he goes on to say, yet the Apostle Paul did not cut himself off from them. And he did not tell faithful members to flee their fellowship. He insisted on giving those churches the opportunity to repent and to be forgiven of the Lord and to grow in grace, knowing that that's the way that we grow, by seeing our sins, repenting and changing. In another section, of his institutes, Calvin says this, and uh, put his opening words into the context of scripture, since they are both scriptural words to describe unbelievers. I confess it a great disgrace if pigs and dogs have a place among the children of God, and a still greater disgrace if the sacred body of Christ be prostituted to them 
And indeed, if churches are well-ordered, they will not bear the wicked in their bosom, nor will they indiscriminately admit worthy and unworthy together to that sacred banquet. But because pastors are not always zealously on the watch, and are also sometimes more lenient than they should be, or are hindered from being able to exercise the severity they would like, the result is that even the openly wicked are not always removed from the company of the saints. This I admit to be a fault, and I do not intend to excuse it since Paul sharply rebukes it in the Corinthians. But even if the church be slack in its duty, still each and every individual has not the right at once to take upon himself the decision to separate. Indeed, I do not deny it that it is the godly man's duty to abstain from all familiarity with the wicked and not to enmesh himself with them in any voluntary relationship. But it is one thing to flee the boon companionship of the wicked, another in hating them to renounce the communion of the church. And the title of his next section is The Imperfect Holiness of the Church Does Not Justify Schism but affords occasion for the exercise within it of the forgiveness of sins. It is no mistake, says Calvin, that our belief in the forgiveness of sins as we confess it in the Apostles' Creed follows immediately after our belief in the Holy Catholic Church. Because the church is a sinful body, and the church is a body which needs to be forgiven. How can we have a holy and successful church if we allow our members to run between churches in order to avoid biblical resolutions of problems? We must be committed to our churches, our individual local churches, as if they were the only church in town. Perhaps if we had that kind of commitment, that kind of mentality, they would then receive the prayer that they need and the love and the support that Christ commands us to give to them. Members must be committed to their church. But secondly, Pastors must be committed to their churches. God has blessed us in Southern California more so financially than in any other presbytery in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, if you look at the statistics. Many of us pastors are being cared for in a way which approximates our needs far more than in any period in the history of our church. And perhaps in that good state of comfort, we are tempted to forget the labor and the sweat that is involved in the work of the kingdom of God and again the urgency of it all. Perhaps as we relax by the pool at Canyon Meadows, it seems a long way off to see Jesus Christ exhausted and asleep in the bottom of a boat on the Sea of Galilee after he's worked so hard healing and preaching to people. For this I toil, says Paul, toil, 
striving with all the energy which he mightily inspires within me, I toil that we may present every man mature in Christ. Pastors must be committed to their churches in the labor that they give to them, in the fervency of their prayers, in the thoroughness of their study and their preparation for the spiritual food that we serve up on the Lord's Day. But a pastor's commitment needs to be more than just hard work. It means that we, just like the members, need to be committed to the church. Where do we get the idea as pastors that members are expected to stick it out and pick up the pieces when there is a problem, but we have the spiritual freedom to accept the call elsewhere? You see, we want people to be committed to us and to our ministry. We know that we need that kind of support in order to succeed. But how often do we leave the people of God, the members of the church, to pick up the pieces? You see, so many of us, partly because we're human beings who are weak, partly because we don't depend upon the Lord enough, but oftentimes when key families move away or when a controversy arises in the church perhaps over a legitimate point of doctrine that we know that we must stand for in the interest of the truth times when those waves start getting larger and the storm is brewing all around us we, we wonder whether indeed we are the man for the hour we wonder that perhaps uh, someone else would be more equipped. I felt that way myself. But the Lord says no. The Lord says we must persevere. It's one of the fruits that we're supposed to have. For you see, the church of Jesus Christ is loved too much by the Lord to be forsaken by us. The Lord Jesus Christ has given his blood for the church. He loves the church. He loves those people that we minister to each week. And we dare not desert the church in its hour of need. Maybe we can't solve the problems. But the Lord can. And the Lord can show us the way to go. How many of our churches, when pastors have left... And sometimes it is perfectly appropriate for pastors to leave churches. How many times when we have left our churches have we left them in good condition or even in better condition than when we found them? Is the church stronger spiritually? Is the leadership stronger? Is the organization of the church stronger? Are more people involved in the work of the ministry? Is the spiritual level of the church at a higher pitch? Have we finished our work indeed? Wynne Arne, who is uh, involved in church growth school, 
has said this. As a church growth consultant, I know of very few growing churches with high rates of pastoral changes. Such churches, in fact, are often declining ones. I recently conducted a study of 58 churches in the Pacific Southwest. Of these 58 churches, over three-fourths of them had had a pastoral change in the last three years, and a high percentage of those churches were plateaued or declining. Throughout, there was a mentality, almost expectancy, that the pastor would be here today and gone tomorrow. The people expect the pastor to have a short ministry, and he does. With such attitudes, no firm commitments are made, no close relationships established, no long-range plans developed. If the church and pastor were to look upon their relationship as irrevocable commitment, a marriage that vows till death do us part, the dynamics would be totally different. And then at the bottom, comment by Robert Schuller, probably the foremost obstacle to church growth that comes to light as we study the hundreds of self-study guides in our Institute for Successful Church Leadership is what might best be termed short-sighted leadership. Three-year and five-year pastorates are common, if not average. As a result, the average church has no 10-year plan, no 15-year plan, no 20-year plan. Personally, I shall be forever indebted to Dr. Raymond Lindquist, former pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Hollywood, who lectured at the seminary when I was a theological student. Boys, he said, never take a call to a church unless you can envision spending your life there. Pastors need to be committed to their churches. And finally, churches must be committed to their pastors. In the minds of too many people, the men that are sent to you by God, the men that stand up there in the pulpit each Sunday, in the minds of too many people, we are a strange and different sort of breed from the people that sit in the pews. We are a superhuman, perhaps, at least uh, uh, abnormal humans. In her book called They Cry Too, Lucille Lavender says this, Ministers supposedly have anatomical characteristics that others don't have, they are built not to wear out as easily as normal creatures. They are more resistant to sleep and relaxation, so they can work a 16-hour-a-day, seven-day week. And if they are awakened in the middle of the night by the telephone and they can't get back to sleep, they work on Sunday's sermon. There's something unusual about their flesh also. Their skin is extra thick and tough so they can be roasted for dinner with a minimum of discomfort. Under this thick skin is a special cushion of insulation that keeps them immune to feelings other earth people have, like never getting angry, despondent, disgusted, or discouraged. The fellow here in this cartoon uh, would seem to be the exception. He's coming home from work, He's just come in the door. He's planted his hat on his wife's head and said, and his wife says to him, other than that, how was your day? They cry too. 
The average time that a pastor spends in a church is decreasing every year. It's around three years now. Could it be that this constant movement is at least partly due to a lack of concern and sometimes good old-fashioned etiquette on the part of church members? Do you take advantage of the openness of your pastor to you when he really exposes his weaknesses? And do you use that as an occasion to criticize him and the state of the church instead of ministering to him? This particular pastor was uh, uh, offering to his congregation the opportunity to share with him any feelings they might have about his ministry. The pastor announces from the pulpit, of course, feel free anytime to let me know what you think of the job I'm doing as your pastor. I especially like the minus five up there at the top. <laughs> the day has passed when uh, anniversaries of ordinations are celebrated in churches. The day has passed when a pastor's time in a church, the anniversary of his service in a church, is celebrated. Even tokens of appreciation to pastors at Christmas time are beginning to fade away. And yes, sometimes pastors don't even get a thank you and handshake at the door of the church anymore. Yeah, it's true. Pastors don't affirm their church members enough. We don't tell people in the congregation how much we appreciate them. That's for sure true. But members, I think, probably do far worse for their pastors. Maybe because they think he hears it all the time. They don't realize that one word of encouragement, one little expression of gratitude, can do a world of good, can melt away all of those hours of discouragement in working with people with serious problems whose hearts are hardened to the gospel that they've prayed over and yet haven't seen blessing as of yet. They don't realize how that one word can give fresh zeal to their pastor in the work of the Lord. In one, one church, six couples invited their pastor over to dinner the same night, and they all gathered after the meal in the living room. And each couple read a letter of appreciation to their pastor, reasons why they were grateful for him and how his ministry had affected their lives. Of course, it doesn't really take six couples, twelve people. Usually it just takes one to make all the labor a special delight. So commit yourself to your pastor, not just with your words of encouragement, but with your prayers. And it will certainly affect your pastor in his service to the Lord. The Lord's church, a successful church, is a committed church. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that you are committed to us as weak and sinful people. We thank you, Lord, that you have been committed to us from before the foundation of the earth in Jesus Christ. 
And we thank you, Lord, that we know that we can never be snatched from your hand, that we can never be separated from your love. We thank you, Lord, that you are committed to us, even though we fail so terribly in the sins we commit, in the sin that we refuse to remove from the center of our lives. Oh, Lord, we thank you that there is always mercy with you, and there is always the knowledge that we are your people, and you are our God. Our Father, help us to learn from your example. Yes, Lord, help us to even learn from atheists in this world who are doing some of the things right that our Lord has told us to do, but that we are not doing. Help us to be a people who are dedicated and committed to you and to each other. That you might be pleased, Father. That you might be pleased. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.